So we'll continue on with uh, a fairly short sutta, the Chula Dukkha Kanda Sutta, and followed by more teachings of Ajahn Chah. And um, one uh, reason I like going through this this particular sutta, it's a short sutta, and it really only has one or two points, but they're very, very important, I think, for the development of right view. Uh, in particular, there is a view that I have heard espoused in the West that uh, to become enlightened, you need to wear out your kama. And that's, uh, it's very, very important to um, really uh, let go of views like that from the outset. And uh, the um, that was the view of the nigantas or, or the Jains that you actually had to, through austerities, wear out your kama and thereby reach enlightenment, come to the end of your kama. Um, of course, that, that type of view has the absurdity that you would have to wear out your good kama as well. So you would not just have to wear out your bad kama, you'd have to wear out your good kama and it would just never end. So uh, suttas like this uh, call into question those views. And then we'll we'll go in more into Lung Cha after this. Chula Dukkha Kanda Sutta, the shorter discourse on the mass of suffering. This is a, also Mahanamath the Sakyan as a character in here, and he was a cousin of the Buddha and the brother of the monks Anuruddha and Ananda. He chose to remain a householder and let Anuruddha become a monk. So uh, he's one of the noble disciples of the Buddha, but he's a householder. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Sakin country at Kapilawatu in Nigroda's park. Then Mahanama the Sakyan went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and said, Venerable Sir, I have long understood the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One thus. Greed is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Hate is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Delusion is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Yet, while I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One thus, at times states of greed, hate, and delusion invade my mind and remain. I have wondered, Venerable Sir, what state is still unabandoned by me internally, owing to which at times these states of greed, hate, and delusion invade my mind and remain. And there's a note on that. According to the commentary, Mahanama had long ago attained the fruit of the once-returner, which only weakens greed, hate, and delusion, but does not eradicate them. The commentary says that he had the mistaken notion that greed, hate, and delusion are eradicated by the path of the once-returner. Thus, when he saw that they still arose in his mind, he realized that they were not abandoned and inquired from the Buddha the cause for their arising. Noble disciples can be mistaken about which defilements are abandoned by which path. Mahanama, there is still a state unabandoned by you internally, owing to which at times states of greed, hate, and delusion invade your mind and remain. For were that state already abandoned by you internally, you would not be living the home life. You would not be enjoying sensual pleasures. It is because that state is unabandoned by you internally that you are living the home life and enjoying sensual pleasures. And another note quite interesting. Uh, from the ensuing discussion on the danger of sensual pleasures, it seems that the state unabandoned by Mahamanama was sensual desire, which kept him tied to the home life and the enjoyment of sensual pleasures. 
Even though a noble disciple has seen clearly as it actually is with proper wisdom that sensual pleasures provide little gratification, much suffering and despair, and that the danger in them is still more, as long as one still does not attain to the rapture and pleasure that are apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, or to something more peaceful than that, he may still be attracted to sensual pleasures. But when a noble disciple has seen clearly as it actually is with proper wisdom that sensual pleasures provide little gratification, much suffering and despair, and that the danger in them is still, still more, and he attains to the rapture and pleasure that are apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, or to something more peaceful than that, then he is no longer attracted to sensual pleasures. And this is probably one of the most interesting notes in this sutta. The rapture and pleasure that are apart from sensual pleasures are the rapture and pleasure pertaining to the first and second jhanas. The states more peaceful than that are the higher jhanas. From this passage, it seems that a disciple may attain even to the second path and fruit without possessing mundane jhana. Before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, I too clearly saw, as it actually is with proper wisdom, how sensual pleasures provide little gratification, much suffering and much despair, and how great is the danger in them. But as long as I still did not attain to the rapture and pleasure that are apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, or to something more peaceful than that, I recognized that I still could be attracted to sensual pleasures. But when I clearly saw it as it, as it is actually, with proper wisdom, how sensual pleasures provide little gratification, much suffering, and much despair, and how great is the danger in them, and I attained to the rapture and pleasure that are apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, or to something more peaceful than that, I recognized that I was no longer attracted to sensual pleasures. And what is the gratification in the case of sensual pleasures? Mahanama, there are these five chords of sensual pleasure, and then it repeats, repeats as in the previous sutta. Now this is a danger in the case of sensual pleasures, a mass of suffering in the life to come, having sensual pleasures as its cause, sensual pleasures as its source, sensual pleasures as its basis, the cause being simply sensual pleasures. Now Mahanama, on one occasion I was living at Rajagaha on the mountain Vulture Peak. On that occasion a number of Nigantas living on the black rock on the slopes of Isigili were practicing continuous standing rejecting seats, and were experiencing painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion. Then when it was evening, I rose from meditation and went to the Nigantas there. I asked them, friends, why do you practice continuous standing, rejecting seats, and experience painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion? When this was said, they replied, Friend, the Niganta Nataputa is omniscient and all-seeing and claims to have complete knowledge and vision thus. Whether I am walking or standing or asleep or awake, knowledge and vision are continuously and uninterruptedly present to me. He says thus, Nigantas, you have done evil actions in the past. Exhaust them with the performance of piercing austerities. And when you, you are... Here and now, restrained in body, speech, and mind, that is doing no evil actions for the future. So by annihilating with asceticism past actions, and by doing no fresh actions, there will be no consequence in the future. With no consequence in the future, there is the destruction of action. With the destruction of action, there is the destruction of suffering. 
With the destruction of suffering, there is the destruction of feeling. With the destruction of feeling, all suffering will be exhausted. This is the doctrine we approve of and accept, and we are satisfied with it. When this was said, I told them, But friends, do you know that you existed in the past, and that it is not the case that you did not exist? No, friend. But friends, do you know that you did evil actions in the past and did not abstain from them? No, friend. But friends, do you know that you did such and such evil actions? No, friend. But friends, do you know that so much suffering has already been exhausted or that so much suffering has still to be exhausted? Or that when so much suffering has been exhausted, all suffering will have been exhausted? No, friend. But friends, do you know what the abandoning of unwholesome states is and what the cultivation of wholesome states is here and now? No, friend. So, friends, it seems that you do not know that you existed in the past, and it is not the case that you did not exist, or that you did evil actions in the past and did not abstain from them, or that you did such and such evil actions, or that so much suffering has already been exhausted, so that so much suffering has still to be exhausted, or that when so much suffering has been exhausted, all suffering will have been exhausted, or what the abandoning of unwholesome states is, or what the cultivation of wholesome states is here and now. That being so, those who are murderers, bloody-handed evildoers in the world, when they are reborn among human beings, go forth into homelessness as nigantas. So there's a note on that. Uh, the Jains held the view that whatever a person experiences is caused by past kama. If that were so, the Buddha argues, the severe pains to which they subjected themselves as part of their ascetic discipline would have to be rooted in grave actions of their previous lives. Friend Gotama, pleasure is not to be gained through pleasure. Pleasure is to be gained through pain. For were pleasure to be gained through pleasure, then King Sinia Bimbisara of Magadha would gain pleasure, since he abides in greater pleasure than the Venerable Gotama. Surely the Venerable Nikantas have uttered those words rashly and without reflection. Rather, it is I who ought to be asked, who abides in greater pleasure, King Sinia Bimbisara of Magadha or the Venerable Gotama? Surely, friend Gotama, we uttered those words rashly and without reflection, but let that be. Now we ask the Venerable Gotama, who abides in greater pleasure, King Sinia Bimbisara of Magadha or the Venerable Gotama? Then, friends, I shall ask you a question in return. Answer it as you like. What do you think, friends? Can King Sinia Bimbisara of Magadha abide without moving his body or uttering a word, experiencing exclusively pleasure for seven days and nights? No, friend. Can King Sinia Bimbisara of Magadha abide without moving his body or uttering a word, experiencing exclusively pleasure for six, five, four, three, or two days and nights, for one day and night? No, friend. But friends, I can abide without moving my body or uttering a word, experiencing exclusively pleasure for one day and a night, for two, three, four, five, and six days and nights, for seven days and nights. What do you think, friends? That being so, who dwells in greater pleasure, King Sani Abimbisara of Magadha or I? That being so, the Venerable Gotama abides in greater pleasure than the King Sani Abimbisara of Magadha. That is what the Blessed One said. Mahanama the Sakyan was satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. Um, there's one more note there. This refers to his own experience of the pleasure of fruition attainment, the attainment of the fruit of arhantship, arahata pala sampati. Okay, and I'll continue for 
reading for about another 15 minutes, just uh, continuing on with short reflections from Lumpur Cha. The Chicken or the Egg. During his first visit to England, Ajahn Chah spoke to many Buddhist groups. One evening after a talk, he received a question from a dignified English lady who had spent many years studying the complex cybernetics of the mind according to the 89 classes of consciousness in the Buddhist Abhidhamma psychology texts. Would he please explain certain of the more difficult aspects of this system of psychology to her so she could continue her study? Dhamma teaches us to let go, but at first we naturally cling to the principles of Dhamma. The wise person takes these principles and uses them as tools to discover the essence of our life. Sensing how caught up she was in intellectual concepts rather than benefiting from practice in her own heart, Ajahn Chah answered her quite directly. You, madam, are like one who keeps hens in her yard, he told her, and goes around picking up the chicken droppings instead of the eggs. Thieves in your heart. The purpose of meditation is to raise things up and put them to the test, to understand their essence. For example, we see the body as something fine and beautiful, whereas the Buddha tells us it, it is unclean, impermanent, and prone to suffering, which view accords with the truth. We are like visitors to a foreign country. Not knowing the language, we cannot enjoy ourselves. But once we have learned the language, we can laugh and joke with others. Or we are like children who have to grow up before we can understand what the grown-ups are saying. The normal view is that the elements of our life, beginning with the body, are stable. One child plays with his balloon until it catches on a branch or a thorn and bursts, leaving him in tears. Another child, smarter than the first, knows that his balloon can burst easily and is not upset when it does. People go through life blindly, ignoring the fact of death like gourmets feasting on fine foods, never thinking they will have to excrete. Then nature calls, but having made no provision, they do not know where to go. There is danger in the world, danger from the elements, danger from thieves. These dangers have their counterpart in the temples too. The Buddha taught us to investigate these dangers and gave the name bhikkhu to one who ordains. Bhikkhu has two meanings, one who begs and one who sees danger in the round of samsara of grasping. Beings experience greed, hatred, and delusion. Succumbing to these defilements, they reap the results, increase their bad habits, make yet more karma, and again succumb to defilements. Why can't you get rid of greed, hatred, and delusion? If your thinking is wrong, you will suffer. If you understand correctly, you can end suffering. You know the workings of kama, of cause and effect. Attachment to pleasure brings suffering in its wake. You gorge yourself on good food, but stomach trouble and intestinal discomfort follow. Or you steal something and are happy with it, but later the police come to arrest you. When you watch, you can learn how to act. You can learn to end grasping and sorrow. The Buddha, seeing this, wanted to escape from the real dangers of the world, which we have to overcome within ourselves. External dangers are not as frightening as the dangers within. What are the elements of this inner danger? Wind. Things come at the senses, causing compulsion, lust, anger, and ignorance to arise, destroying what is good in us. Normally we see the wind only as that which blows the leaves about not seeing the wind of our senses, which, unwatched, can cause the storms of desire. Fire. Our temple may never have been struck by fire, but greed, hatred, and delusion burn us constantly. 
Lust and aversion cause us to speak and do wrong. Delusion leads us to see good as bad, bad as good, the ugly as beautiful, the valueless as valuable. But one who does not meditate does not see this and is overcome by these fires. Water. Here the danger is the flood of defilement in our hearts, submerging our true nature. Thieves. The real thieves do not exist outside us. Our monastery has seen thieves only once in 20 years. But inwardly, the five gangs of attachment, the aggregates, are ever robbing, beating, and destroying us. What are these five aggregates? One, body. It is a prey to illness and pain. When it does not accord with our wishes, we have grief and sorrow. Not understanding the natural aging and decay of the body, we suffer. We feel attraction or repulsion toward the body of others, bodies of others, and are robbed of our true peace. Feelings, when pain and pleasure arise, we forget that they are impermanent, suffering, not self. We identify with our emotions and are thus tortured by our wrong understanding. Three, memories and perceptions. Identifying with what we recognize and remember gives rise to greed, hatred, and delusion. Our wrong understanding becomes habitual, stored in the subconscious. Four, volitions and other elements of mind. Not understanding the nature of mental states, we react, and thoughts and feelings, likes and dislikes, happiness and sorrow arise. Forgetting that they are impermanent, suffering and selfless, we cling to them. Consciousness. We grasp at that which knows the other aggregates. We think, I know, I am, I feel, and are bound by this illusion of self, of separation. All these thieves, this wrong understanding, leads to wrong action. The Buddha had no desire for this. He saw that there was no true happiness to be found here. Thus, he, he gave the name bhikkhu to those who also see this danger and seek a way out. The Buddha taught his monks the true nature of the five aggregates and how to let go of them without clinging to them as me or mine. When we understand them, we will see that they have potential for great harm or great value, but they do not disappear. They are simply no longer grasped as our own. After his enlightenment, the Buddha still had physical ills, had feelings of pain and pleasure, had memories, thoughts, and consciousness. But he did not cling to them as being self, as being me or mine. He knew them as they were, and the one who knew was also not I, not self. Separating the five aggregates from the defilements and from clinging is like clearing the brush in the forest without destroying the trees. There is just a constant arising and falling away. Defilement cannot gain a foothold. We are simply being born and dying with the aggregates. They just come and go according to their nature. If someone curses us and we have no feelings of self, the incident ends with the spoken words, and we do not suffer. If unpleasant feelings arise, we should let them stop there, realizing that the feelings are not us. He hates me. He troubles me. He is my enemy. A bhikkhu does not think like this, nor does he hold views of pride or comparison. If we do not stand up in the line of fire, we do not get shot. If there is no one to receive it, the letter is sent back. Moving gracefully through the world, not caught in evaluating each event, a bhikkhu becomes serene. This is the way of Nibbana, empty and free. Investigate the five aggregates, then make a clean forest. You will be a different person. Those who understand in emptiness and practice accordingly are few, but they come to know the greatest joy. Why not try it? You can abolish the thieves in your heart and set everything right. And then this is the beginning of part two, correcting our views.
When you pick mushrooms, Ajahn Chah cautions, you must know what to look for. When you undertake spiritual practice, you must also know what attitudes to nourish, what dangers to avoid, and what mental qualities to encourage. Here he emphasizes the power of training or endurance and courage, developing a will willingness to find the middle path and follow it despite temptation and defilement. When greed, hatred, or delusion arise, he says, don't give in to them. Don't be discouraged. Just stay mindful and strong in your resolve. As your training develops, you will see that every single experience you pass through is impermanent and thus unsatisfactory. You will discover firsthand the endless truth of these characteristics in all existence and begin to learn the way of freedom, of non-attachment. But Ajahn Chah reminds us that this requires a willingness to investigate both our sufferings and our joys with an equal mind. When the heart becomes calm and the mind clear, we come closer to the truth of what Ajahn Chah calls just that much. The Dhamma, the truth, is really very simple. All things that arise and pass, the whole world of changing phenomena, is really only that much. When we truly discover what this means, then here in our world we can come to peace. This talk's called The Wrong Road. A wandering ascetic, having heard of the Buddha, traveled everywhere looking for him. One night he came to stay in a house where the Buddha was also staying, but not knowing the Buddha's physical appearance, he was unaware of his presence. The next morning he arose and continued on his way, still searching for the Buddha. To search for peace and enlightenment without correct understanding is like this. Due to a lack of understanding of the truth of suffering and its elimination, all the subsequent factors on the path will be wrong. Wrong intentions, wrong speech, wrong actions, and wrong practice of concentration and tranquility. Your likes and dislikes are not a trustworthy guide in this matter either, although foolish people may take them for their ultimate reference. Alas, it's like traveling to a certain town. You unknowingly start out on the wrong road, and since it is a convenient one, you travel, out, travel it in comfort, but it will not take you where you want to go. Right understanding. One develops right understanding by seeing impermanence, suffering, and not-self in everything, which leads to detachment and loss of infatuation. Detachment is not aversion. An aversion to something we once liked is temporary, and the craving for it will return. Imagine some food that you like, bamboo shoots or sweet curry, for example. Imagine having it every day for five or six years. You'd get tired of bamboo shoots. If someone were to offer it to you, you would not get excited. In the same way, we should see impermanence, suffering, and emptiness in all things at all times. Bamboo shoots. We seek not for a life of pleasure, but to find peace. Peace is within oneself, to be found in the same place as agitation and suffering. It is not found in a forest or on a hilltop, nor is it given by a teacher. Where you experience suffering, you can also find freedom from suffering. To try to run away from suffering is actually to run toward it. Investigate suffering, see its causes, and put it into them right now, rather than merely de dealing with their effects. And the final one for today, starving defilements. Those just beginning often wonder what practice is. Practice occurs when you try opposing the defilements, not feeding old habits. Where friction and difficulty arise, that's the place of work. When you pick mushrooms to eat, you do not do so blindly. You have to know which kind is which. So too with our practice. We must know the dangers, the snake's bite of defilements, in order to free ourselves from them. The defilements, greed, hatred, and delusion 
are at the root of our suffering and our selfishness. We must learn to overcome them, to conquer and go beyond their control, to become masters of our minds. Of course, it seems hard. It's like having the Buddha tell you to split up with a friend you have known since childhood. The defilements are like a tiger. We should imprison the tiger in a good strong cage made of mindfulness, energy, patience, and endurance. Then we can let it starve to death by not feeding its habitual desires. We do not have to take a knife and butcher it. Or defilements are like a cat. If you feed it, it will keep coming around. Stop feeding it, and eventually it will not bother to come around anymore. We will unavoidably be hot and distressed in our practice at first. But remember, only, only the defilements are hot. People think, I never had problems like this before. What's wrong? Before, when we fed our desires, we were at peace with them, like a man who takes care of an internal infection by dressing only the external sores. Resist defilements. Do not give them all the food or sleep they want. Many people consider this the extreme of self-torture, but it is necessary to become inwardly strong. See for yourself. Constantly watching the mind, you may think you are seeing only effects and wonder about the causes. Suppose parents have a child who grows up to be disrespectful. Distressed by his behavior, they may ask, where has this child come from? Actually, our suffering comes from our own wrong understanding, our attachment to various mental activities. We must train our minds like a buffalo. The buffalo is our thinking. The owner is the meditator. Raising and training the buffalo is the practice. With a trained mind, we can see the truth. We can know the cause of ourself and its end, the end of all sorrow. It's not complicated, you know. Everyone has defilements in their practice. We must work with them, struggling when they arise. This is not something to think about, but to do. Much patience is necessary. Gradually, we have to change our habitual ways of thinking and feeling. We must see how we suffer when we think in terms of me and mine. Okay, any questions? Day three, so far so good, you're doing well. Day three of 85 or so. It's really a, a silly question, but in the past, uh, when, when you've said, no, it's day 80, you know, you usually have felt like, you know, it's like, it's been a long time, or, you know, you've been refreshed at that time, or? Day uh, 80? Yeah. Day 80 of the winter retreat. Yeah, like in the past when you've been doing this, and you say, well, today is day 81. <laughs> you know, how, 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 how has it felt in the past? Like, oh, it's been, you know, I wish this ends soon, or, you know, it's great. I, I wanted to keep going. <laughs> it's probably uh, for myself uh, just that, because uh, sometimes as the retreat's starting out uh, and practice starts to go well, why don't you just have... I get the same question every year. Why don't you just have the whole year be the winter retreat and just have a, a retreat crew look after things for the whole year? But then by the end, it's, oh, be nice to kind of have a work period or kind of. <laughs> so it's a, it's a balance. Any thoughts about that? Uh, not really. And just, yeah, just, it's just so, I mean, just that sense of, of paying attention to what the mind throws up and because sometimes yeah you you uh, think of there's a little time or a lot of time or too much time or too little time and uh, and and really it's it's our own 
mind creating creating some distinction or some kind of some kind of preference yes. and depends completely on what we're, what mood we're feeling at the time so it's just being able to identify and the, the actual constructor of of these these moods you know whether it's dissatisfaction or satisfaction yeah i think that's that's really true how our moods change how we perceive the past and the future oh yeah because so many times uh, like you know i've had this experience of talking to somebody and they'll say like you know uh, oh things are going really good right now and then one week later they'll you know i'll talk to them again they'll say for the past month things have been awful <laughs> but just a week ago it was, things were really good so it's like the the mood can really color the past and the future how we perceive ourselves and um, i had a question about uh, before i lumpo used to always mention that um, that uh, if the practice is working, then the wholesome state should be increasing and unwholesome state should be decreasing. Um, and I was wondering about it before I came here, because sometimes there are like unwholesome states that come up. But in the reading today, uh, Ajahn Chah was also saying that it's like the defilements, you were peaceful before, but then now that you're not feeling the defilements, they're, now you're not peaceful. How do we know if the unwholesome states come up, that if it's just the defilements fighting, or if it's actually your practice is not in the right direction. Well, there's really, there's really no. I mean, I wouldn't make <laughs> one is is I'd be very, very. Uh, I would caution against making uh, too quick a, a judgment on sort of, of you know practice is going terrible because I've got wholesome states. Uh, it's more like uh, being willing to uh, investigate over the long term uh, uh, in terms of, of uh, what's the trajectory. Uh, and, and even when we think in terms of wholesome states, unwholesome states, practice good, practice progressing, prog practice not progressing. But it's, it's much rather than a um, trying to make a decision out of a tiny little exper one experience or one mental state. It's more like a trajectory uh, over time. And that's where practice requires a, 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 a real uh, a patience with the, with the practice and willingness to investigate those kind of causes and conditions over, over time. And then you, uh, certain confidence kind of arises. Yeah, I, I also think uh, maybe with that, the precepts can highlight that. Like, the precepts are right action or good action. And then if any of the precepts, we suffer trying to keep them, that's like the defilements being starved. Whereas uh, before, I think Ajahn Chah was saying, like, we were at peace with the defilements, but it was like a man trying to just keeps putting a Band-Aid on his external sore, but not treating the internal infection, which is actually killing us. So uh, the uh, being at peace with the defilements, I think Ajahn Chah is not saying necessarily he, you're at you know peace, but you're at peace with the defilements. And then so say uh, if there's something we did before that wasn't within the bounds of the precepts, then the unwholesome states were increasing, but it was really hard to see. 
so when we keep the precepts, I think it kind of highlights that as well. Within, you know, when we try to be within the framework of the precepts, how does that bring up various types of suffering for us that, uh, that that could be a way to see whether it's the suffering of the defilements being starved or whether it's wholesome or unwholesome. You know, it's uh, one, one way of possibly seeing it. One of the things that struck me with this, uh, one of the readings, uh, this the uh, Ajahn Chah's um, descriptions uh, emphasizing of, of not-self as a, a key factor of, of uh, really over mm, or dealing skillfully with, with, with defilements and habits conditioning say <clears throat> and uh, um, say because uh, uh, there always be some residue of just the fact that we've got bodies and minds there's always going to be some residue of habit and conditioning and and uh, um, we're not stumps uh, with no feeling whatsoever so we are we do experience particular, Feelings and perspectives, but that's that's, uh, and that's not necessarily uh, a problem uh, as long as we keep re, you know, seeing it within the, the framework of of oh this is not self, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am, and uh, that's where your point of freedom really is, where your point of liberation is. Again, as opposed to the, uh, uh, the 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 sutta that was read of you know when I get my when I get my karma worked out then I'm going to be free. Um, yeah, it's an interesting point because uh, there's there can be confusion that comes up. There's a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Tens, where the Buddha makes this statement, but there is not a end of suffering until you come to the end of karma. I say. Yeah. And uh, that can be taken as, oh, you need to wait for your kama to wear out. That's the only way you'll become liberated. Yeah. But then there's so many places where you have like Angulimala, uh, the Buddha talking about Angulimala receiving fruits of his past actions after our huntship yeah. and uh, things like that. And so it's, it, it is one of these subtle points that's good to, good to understand, I think, from the outset in terms of cultivating right view. Yeah, and also that that uh, the Buddha in in uh, I'm not sure how many places, but there are a variety of places where the Buddha um, sets up the you know uses the same structure of four noble truths: dukkha, cause of dukkha, cessation of dukkha, path leading to cessation of dukkha. Kama, cause of kama, cessation of kama, path yeah. leading to cessation of kama. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a uh, <coughs> it's put into that 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 that, that context. <coughs> yeah, seen in that framework, then the the sutta and the Anguttara Nikaya makes a lot, more, makes sense. A lot more sense. Yeah. Okay, that's good for today. We'll have uh, one more reading tomorrow, and that'll finish off our. First uh, week of readings. Tomorrow's the day before one pra, so uh, so tomorrow we'll do one more reading in this similar vein, and then perhaps shift gears based on whoever whoever does the next week.